Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. My children have three ancestors who encamped at Valley Forge that we know about, two on my wife's side and one on my side. My wife's ancestors are Private John Church and Corporal Humphrey Nichols. On my side is Ensign Cherick Beekman. And Beekman's future wife was the subject of my earlier episode titled Romance and Revolution, which detailed the burning of Kingston, New York. Fortunately, there's a lot of records that survived Beekman, including his own mess account journal of his regiment, the 2nd New York Regiment, while encamped at Valley Forge. But for today's episode, Valley Forge is the setting, but my ancestor is not the subject. Though our subject today no doubt made a personal impression on my ancestor. This subject is one that is near and dear to my heart because a retelling of his life shows how perfect imperfection can be. How, no matter how hard we try to be something we're not, our natural God-given talents will nonetheless shine through, and our true contribution to posterity won't be who we think we are, but who we actually are. So, let's unpack one of the most unlikely heroes of the American War for Independence in this episode called Baron von Steuben, An Illustrious Stranger. Baron von Steuben was looking for the Continental Congress. It was a wicked winter of 1778, and the wild backcountry roads of Massachusetts were nearly impassable. Before setting out from Boston, John Hancock warned Steuben and his entourage to be careful, as Tories were all around. If the small group ran into someone still loyal to the king, they risked being arrested and handed over to the Redcoats. But the Baron was undeterred. He had crossed the Atlantic for this meeting with Congress. His military career had sent him to nearly every corner of Europe, and he faced every enemy it could offer. He wasn't afraid of the American wilderness, even in the winter, or the Tories that lurked in its shadows. Steuben and his staff, led by a guide, cut through the snowdrifts that at times were higher than a man. The villages were few and far between, but Steuben's young French assistant, a man named Dupontsay, was enthralled by this land of liberty. In his journal, he documented every inn, every tavern, every hostess, and noted their attractiveness. At one inn, there was no food or beverage to be had, except whiskey. One night of particularly bad weather, the road-weary group entered an inn, thanking God that they had come across it. As they stomped the snow from their boots, the innkeeper approached them, and he knew something was odd about this group. The Baron was obviously some sort of European import, probably here to help the rebel army encamped at Valley Forge. However, the innkeeper was a Tory, and he hollered at the group that they had to leave, that he had neither lodging nor food available. The Baron's entourage pleaded with the innkeeper as best they could in very broken English, 
They begged him, telling him that there was no way that they could carry on on such a night. But the innkeeper would not be swayed. Under no circumstances would he give rest and relaxation to enemies of the crown. The baron, though he could not speak English at all, could sense what was going on from the tone and body language of the men arguing, and his voice cut through the clamoring of the men when he yelled, PISTOLEN! At that command, one of Stoiben's servants darted from the inn and retrieved a massive horse pistol from the baron's saddle. Stoiben grabbed the pistol from his servant, cocked the hammer back, and pointed the muzzle between the eyes of the innkeeper, and uttered some curses and insults in German, which no one in the room could speak. But the innkeeper could also read body language, and suddenly remembered that he did in fact have a few spare rooms, as well as some food and drink to offer the men. And the good innkeeper waited on the illustrious strangers as they ate and drank long into the night. Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerard Augustin von Steuben was born on Sunday, September 17, 1730. At the young von Steuben's christening, one of the godparents was unable to attend. But everyone understood. After all, being the king of Prussia probably kept him busy. King Friedrich Wilhelm was not only generous enough to be the child's godfather, but also allowed the parents to use his name. And truth be told, he was very busy. His beloved army was everything to the king, and he found no greater joy than in drilling it. Paul Lockhart, author of Drillmaster of Valley Forge, describes the Prussian nation's spirit as follows, quote, Prussia was a thoroughly militarized society in which everything was geared towards the need of the army. It was, in Maribo's biting words, an army with a country, and not the other way around. It was in this latter-day Sparta that Friedrich von Steuben was born. End quote. Latter-day Sparta, indeed. Eighty percent of the national budget was spent on the military, and all males at birth were registered for conscription. The head of the army was, of course, the king, yet in Prussia... He wasn't some distant figurehead on a throne. He trained with the army. He marched with the army. He wore the same uniform as the army. Lockhart notes that all Prussian officers had direct access to the king himself, no matter how lowly their rank. The young von Steuben's father was an engineering officer for the king. And before Friedrich von Steuben was yet a year old, his father was sent to Russia to aid the Tsarina against the Turks, and he brought his whole family with him. Ten years later... King Friedrich Wilhelm was dead and succeeded by his son, who would later become known as Frederick the Great. Where the former was loath to spill the blood of his beloved army, Frederick the Great was eager to see what the troops were capable of. And within six months of taking the throne, he made war upon Austria. Von Steuben's father was stationed in Poland during these years and was recognized for distinguished service. By the end of the war, he was raised to the rank of major. And though this seems like a small promotion, the Prussian military advancement is notoriously slow. It was a meritocracy in the extreme. These years in Poland were where Friedrich von Steuben became a teenager and received a small dose of formal education at the hands of the Jesuits. But for the eldest son of a Prussian military officer, there was little doubt what sort of life his future held. In 1744... Frederick the Great initiated war yet again upon Austria. This time around, von Steuben, who was now 14, joined his father in the engineering corps and watched his old man barking orders and drawing up plans for the siege of Prague. The smell of the battlefield, the sounds of 18th century siege weapons, the black powder, 
the exquisite uniforms, the medals glinting in the sun of a European battlefield. The warcraft of it all enraptured the young man and fueled an ambition for battlefield glory. Though he admired his father's dedication to the engineering corps, he knew for him the infantry beckoned. By 16, he was an officer cadet. Two years later, promoted to ensign. By 20, he had attained the lowest commissioned officer's rank, that of lieutenant. This long Prussian process of developing officers gave them a special appreciation for the daily toils of the NCOs and privates. In fact, no matter the rank, officers were required to conduct daily drills with their soldiers, no exceptions. Even the king considered the drilling of his men part of his duty. For ten years, von Steuben remained in Poland, drilling his troops, instilling Prussian discipline into them. Cleanliness was always a top priority for him. No detail was too small for the scrutiny of this Prussian officer, or any Prussian officer for that matter. Paperwork, ration distribution, uniform maintenance, weapons care, all of it caught the watchful eye of von Steuben. But von Steuben also demonstrated a paternal care for his men. Their well-being was paramount, and their hardships were his to endure alongside them. In his spare time, he taught himself French, the language of culture and king's courts in Europe. He also sunk his teeth into military sciences, French philosophers, as well as Greek and Roman history. He was as ambitious as any young officer, if not more, and he loathed the monotony of peacetime. But peace was finally broken with the explosion of the Seven Years' War, where Prussia and Britain found themselves at war against Sweden, France, Russia, and Austria. And on the very same battlefield where Steuben watched his father lead his engineer corps, he took part in his first war. He bravely led his regiment against the enemy, and though valiant they were, many of his men died and he himself was wounded. As a whole, the rest of Europe was in awe of Prussian military prowess, their command of the battlefield, their speed on the march, their stoic fearlessness in the face of the bayonet. The discipline and bravery of their officers, all of it showed Europe what the pinnacle of 18th century professional soldiers looked like. Even in retreat, the Prussian army was deadly. For in surrendering the battlefield, they maintained calm and order. In the midst of their retreat, the ranks would turn and load and fire in organized succession with stunning results. A Prussian musketeer could load and fire his weapon in 11 seconds. For infantry lines three ranks deep, that's a terrifying rate of fire. This, combined with a marching pace faster than any other army in Europe, allowed them, at the Battle of Luthen, to outpace and utterly destroy an Austrian army three times its size. One British onlooker noted, quote, they are so accurate that no time being lost in dressing or correcting distances. They arrive sooner at their object than any others, and at the instant of forming, they are in perfect order to make the attack. End quote. More battles, more promotions, and more glory were von Steuben's as the war progressed, and his prowess was noted by the crown. But in the summer of 1761, the army von Steuben was fighting with was surrounded and captured by the Russians and sent to St. Petersburg. In the 18th century, there were a lot worse things than being a captured officer. Being a captured private was one of them. Officers in captivity operated on sort of a gentleman's agreement. They had plush accommodations and could move about the city of their captivity at will, and they were often the guests of many local parties and dinners put on by the native gentry. Von Steuben loved to mingle at these parties. He even came to be good friends with Karl Peter Ulrich, the heir to the Russian throne. Just a few short months later, the Tsarina was dead, and Steuben's new friend sat on the throne of the vast Russian dominion. 
Von Steuben didn't miss a beat, and he personally opened up a channel of peace talks between the Tsar and his own king, Frederick the Great. The result was Russia's defection, and it changed the course of world history, paving the way for British and German imperial dominance in the years to come. Had Russia stayed in the war, it was very likely that Austria, not Prussia, would emerge as the chief German state, and being an ally of France, it makes me wonder, had von Steuben not been captured and ended up in Russia, would World War I had even occurred? But I digress. Friedrich von Steuben was a fast-rising star at only a captain's rank, and for obvious reasons. And his rising stock was confirmed when he was selected for an elite group of men to be groomed as new generals under the personal tutelage of Frederick the Great himself. But calamity struck, the details of which aren't exactly clear. But the fallout created a rumor that has hung like a cloud over Steuben's name all the way into the 21st century. He himself says nothing other than that he gained an enemy and a fellow classmate. But all we know is that in the year 1763, in just a few short months, he was demoted, removed from service, and left Prussia altogether. Lockhart points out that as a result of slow Prussian advancement, his paper credentials didn't match up to his actual experience as a soldier. He was only a captain, but he had seen more military action and strategy than many of his own contemporaries. But regardless... At 33, Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerard Augustine von Steuben was unable to work in the only career he had known since birth. Later in life, he wrote that at this time he could have retired to his family estates in Germany, but that was all a lie. It's true that he did come from a noble family, yet they possessed nothing. At another time, though, he was more forthcoming about his real prospects. Quote, my adverse fate forced me to leave my fatherland, my friends, and my supports, and perhaps renounce them for life. End quote. He found employment through his connections working in the court of an obscure German state, and he was well liked there, and he made many friends, and he was eventually admitted into the chivalric order of fidelity, which, per tradition, granted him the legitimate use of the title of baron. But he yearned to be a soldier again, and so he began advertising his services to various armies, the French, Austrian, even the East India Company, but nothing panned out. One day, however, Steuben found himself making small talk with a British cartographer named Peter Burdett. The big news of the day was the rebellion against Britain in the American colonies. And so Burdett, being familiar with the events, brought the Baron up to speed on what was going on across the Atlantic. And the cartographer's retelling had a sympathetic bend towards the colonies, however. You see, Burdett was an American agent in the pay of Benjamin Franklin. It was through Burdett that Franklin and his associate Silas Dean were actively looking for experienced military officers to help the ragtag Continental Army. And so, a meeting in Paris between Steuben, Franklin, and Dean was arranged. The Baron who barely had a penny to his name, spared no expense for this meeting. He splurged on a magnificent new suit, one befitting the noble title of a baron. But little did the baron know was that his meeting with Dean and Franklin was at the worst possible time. They had already been sending swarms of foreign officers over to America, who, upon meeting Congress, demanded grand commissions and vast sums of money from the fledgling government that they simply did not have. And when these soldiers of fortune were granted rank above loyal American-born patriots, it was a huge offense to those who had been slugging it out against the British. 
for many Americans. These dazzling princes of Europe were just the sort of yoke they were fighting and dying to shed. They didn't want any more of them. And so, Dean and Franklin made von Steuben the worst job offer in the history of job offers. To travel to America at his own expense and see what happens. The Baron obviously refused and he huffed out of the meeting. But just then, another job opportunity fell into his lap. A position in the court of yet another obscure German state. And it was a decent job offer, and it was his only prospect. But again, disaster. Another rumor had reached out to a soon-to-be employer that von Steuben had, quote, taken familiarities with young boys. Lockhart points out that, in the Prussian military, homosexuality wouldn't have been all that damaging of a claim. Rumors were already swirling about Frederick the Great's sexual preferences. But pederasty was a damning accusation, leaving Steuben, in Lockhart's words, unemployed and unemployable. But Franklin and Dean called on the Baron again. This time, they had an amended offer for him. They found a benefactor to cover his expenses to America, but he would have to join the Continental Army as a volunteer. There would be no promise of pay, not from them. That would be left up to Congress. Von Steuben, by this point, had nothing left for him in Europe. In fact, being arrested was a very real possibility if he were to return home. And so now, as countless European immigrants had done for 200 years before Steuben, he shook the dust of Europe from his heels and he sought to build a new life in America. But there was a little bit of a problem. Though any military man who talked to the Baron would quickly perceive his vast tactical knowledge, he was still only a captain. So Franklin and Dean and others who knew his true value fudged his resume a little bit. Well, actually a lot. Quoting Lockhart, who quotes letters by Dean and Franklin, quote, He was, they wrote, a lieutenant general in the Prussian army, and had seen more than 20 years of service under the king of Prussia, whom he had attended on all his campaigns. For a portion of that time, he had served the king in person as quartermaster general, and another portion as aide-de-camp to the king. Steuben bore written testimonials from Prince Henry and other great personages. He was also warmly recommended by the ministry here, who are acquainted with his person and character." His distinguished character and known abilities were attested to by two of the best judges of military merit in this country. End quote. Lockhart goes on, quote, As if these accolades were not enough, their authors waxed poetic over Steuben's motives. He was traveling to America, quote, with a true zeal for our cause and a view of engaging in and rendering all the services in his power, end quote. He, quote, goes over to America upon no other motive than to render himself useful in our good cause and to humble our enemies, end quote. Steuben's ardor was so great that he had turned down a, quote, very important and lucrative post in one of the German courts in order to serve Congress. Congress could not possibly turn away such a talented soldier whose, quote, 20 years study and practice in the Prussian school may be of great use to our armies. Congress would be remiss in its duties if it did not accept such a great gift freely given, end quote. All blatant lies. Sometime later, when Robert Morris of the Continental Congress wrote to Silas Dean as to why the Baron had no papers backing up all these accolades, Dean willingly covered for the Baron, telling Morris that he advised the Baron to hurry up to America and not to worry about retrieving his papers because time was of the essence. Dean and the others even assembled a phony entourage for the Baron, because no respectable European general and aide-de-camp of Frederick the Great would ever travel without a staff. And the group set sail on September 5th, 1777. 
It was this entourage that was received into the city of Boston with open arms, though not open wallets. The Baron had no money and was forced to beg for advances to pay for his lodgings and food, but nonetheless, the Puritan descendants were very happy to see a foreign officer who not only wasn't French, but also wasn't Catholic. And it was this hodgepodge group of pretenders who stumbled into the Tory Run Inn at the beginning of this story. Steuben's aide, de Ponce, recalls the spectacle the group made of themselves. Quote, Only fancy yourself, an old German baron with a large brilliant star on his breast, three French aides-de-camp, and a large spoiled Italian dog, and none of all that company could speak a word of English. End quote. The Baron eventually made it to York, where Congress sat in hiding. And he stood before them in his exquisite uniform, and he told them that he had been made no promises and expected none from Congress, and that he was here to serve Washington as a volunteer. And it was exactly what they wanted to hear. But both Congress and the Baron knew that if he did prove to be as valuable as Benjamin Franklin and Silestine made him out to be, they would eventually have to pay him. But first, he must prove himself. And so... He was off to Valley Forge to see what use he might be to the struggling commander-in-chief, George Washington. The winter of 1777 and 78 was a very dark time for the rebellion. The rebel capital, Philadelphia, had been captured, and Washington had failed to retake it. His men just could not command the battlefield in the way that the British Army could. The way they moved, the way they marched, the way they fought outdid the Americans in every way that... The patriotic zeal just could not make up for. And when the British charged them with bayonets, the Americans would always flee the field. They had no idea how to properly use or defend against that terrifying weapon. One recent bright spot was American General Gates' victory over General Burgoyne at Saratoga. And though the victory hardly belonged to Gates and more to Benedict Arnold, Gates claimed glory nonetheless. Many thought that the victory would spur the French into joining the war, but no such news had yet come and doubt about the whole war effort was beginning to settle in. There was also a coup percolating in the patriotic leadership. When Washington was chosen as commander-in-chief, there were others who felt stepped over, namely Horatio Gates and Charles Lee. Both had experience in the British Army, and both were more senior in rank and experienced in Washington. As time went on, and as Washington's failures mounted, Lee, Gates, and other generals grew louder in their disdain for the commander-in-chief. Congress, too, was beginning to express doubts about Washington. This became known as the Conway Cabal, and it was affecting everything for Washington. Enlistments were disappearing, supplies were drying up, men in Congress whose job it was to support the army were actively working to its ruin for no other reason than to see Washington fail. Thus, the army that was encamped at Valley Forge was a skeleton, in the dead of winter, soldiers had no shoes, no coats, no blankets, no food. Some only had rags between them and their nakedness. Fire cake, a mixture of flour and water, was at many times their only sustenance. With such malnutrition, smallpox was decimating their ranks. The Baron had gotten wind of all of this before he entered Valley Forge, and his aide, de Ponce, recalled, quote, Our army, if army it might be called, were encamped at Valley Forge, destitute of everything but courage and patriotism. And what was worse than all, disaffection was spreading through the land. End quote. As Washington was balancing all these delicate troubles, he received word from Congress that they were sending him 
an illustrious stranger. As the Baron approached Valley Forge, General Washington rode out to meet him. And Washington, who knew his credentials, did not pour praise on the Baron at their meeting. It just wasn't his style. He remained reserved in the presence of this presumably Prussian aristocrat, and together they rode side by side on the wet, muddy road into camp. Valley Forge was a vast 2,000 acres in the hills of Pennsylvania, 25 miles outside Philadelphia. The soldiers had worked tirelessly to transform it into a city with a thousand log cabins to house the, the 10,000 men, women, and other non-combatants. But it was a loathsome sight to behold. The signs of starvation and disease were everywhere, and the cold, sunken, vacant eyes of the soldiers glared at this well-fed and well-clothed European who passed them by. Yet despite the abysmal condition of the army that he was now some unknown part of, he relished in being a soldier again. This was where he belonged. But Washington wanted to get a sense of what von Steuben could be used for before he assigned him any sort of duty. In his first two weeks, the Baron joined Washington for dinner ten times. The commander-in-chief further allowed the Baron to go anywhere he desired in the camp, to evaluate it, to analyze it, to offer solutions for its betterment, and it couldn't have been a more perfect assignment for von Steuben, who spent the next few weeks taking notes on everything. He watched the men drill. He watched them eat. He watched them clean their muskets. He watched them cook their meals, make their tents, make fires. He even watched where they shit. He noted a lack of discipline and increasing desertions. He watched the officers and how they had led their men. And he watched them drill and train as best they knew how. In his estimation, there was hardly a thing that was right with the army. Before long, General Washington was inundated with memos from von Steuben regarding his observations, along with his solutions. The Baron spared no punches with Washington, telling him exactly what was wrong with his army. And it was the sort of advice that Washington craved. And it became apparent that von Steuben might make a remarkable inspector general of the army. The current inspector general and staff were, in my estimation at least, criminally negligible. No training standards existed. No accountability was maintained. Corruption was rife. Clothing and food were obviously and woefully non-existent. And to drive the point home, it was General Conway, for whom the Conway Cabal received its name, who was the current Inspector General. And he hated Washington. And so because the Inspector General's office was occupied, Washington gave the Baron the unofficial role of training the army. The soldiers up to this point were still unclear about who the Baron was exactly. In truth, not even Washington or Congress really knew. They just knew they needed help, and here was someone who might be useful. As the European acquainted himself with the camp soldiers, they came up with their own ideas about him. One soldier saying, quote, Never before or since have I had such an impression of the ancient fabled god of war as when I looked on the Baron. He seemed to me a perfect personification of Mars, the trappings of his horse, the enormous holster of his pistols, his large size, his strikingly martial aspect, all seemed to favor the idea. End quote. The Baron quickly learned to love these soldiers. He could not fathom that they still existed as a group of unified men in a cause. They were utterly destitute, and yet, here they were. He recalled, quote, No European army could have been kept together under such dreadful deprivations. End quote. Despite his admiration for the Americans, the Baron had quite a task ahead of him. It was already March. He had three months to get them ready for the summer campaign, to fight like Europeans, and he didn't even speak English. Nonetheless, the drilling began. To Steuben's disgust, American officers didn't actually drill their men. They left that duty to the sergeants. 
and it's actually a custom inherited from the British. But this lack of leadership was the first thing to be corrected. With the Baron in charge, everyone drilled. The soldiers lined up as the sun rose over the frozen parade grounds of Valley Forge. The Baron galloped to meet them, dressed in full uniform. These men formed a single company only. They were to be an elite corps, trained personally by the Baron. Then, once satisfied with their abilities, he would turn them loose on the army to replicate his presence. It was the only way to train 10,000 soldiers in such a short time. As Lockhart says, the Baron was teaching teachers. The Baron dismounted from his horse and approached the tattered, starving men, and he began at the beginning, how a soldier was supposed to stand. Then he taught them how to form ranks, how to align themselves on the battlefield. Then, how to march. The British marched at a pace of 60 steps per minute, but the Baron was teaching the Americans how to march like Prussians, at least 75 steps per minute. Next, he taught them how to wheel as a unit. It's a surprisingly difficult task for hundreds of men to do at the same time. And the men often screwed up this command, and the Baron's anger would spill over. His face would contort, and he would unleash a torrent of Germanic curses and insults upon them. The men thought it was hilarious. They loved it. Lockhart notes, quote, To a civilian, these outbursts would have appeared inappropriate and maybe frightening, but the men of the model company, like soldiers everywhere, were discriminating connoisseurs of foul language, and they approved heartily. End quote. He would personally and quite physically straighten up the slacking soldiers' posture. He would snatch the rifles from them for random inspections and cursing the bastard soldier who couldn't keep a clean weapon then just as quickly praised them for a successful march. And a strange mix of French and German shouting filled the air on the parade grounds. The Baron's fists shook in the air and his feet stomped, but the men continued to improve. And if they didn't understand what he was trying to shout in German, he would call upon his French assistant, quote, My dear Dupontier, come and swear for me in English. These fellows won't do what I bid them. End quote. So dramatic were the Baron's outbursts, and so impressive were the soldiers' progress that soon the entire camp turned out to watch these drills in progress, looking forward to the day when they might look so professional. Soon, the men were marching at a pace of 120 steps per minute, twice as fast as the British. After drilling, the Baron would retire, eat a quick dinner, make notes on the day's drill, and rise at 3 a.m., drink a cup of coffee, smoke a pipe, and do it all over again. Steuben's style of leadership endeared himself to the men, and soon he began to understand the American spirit as distinct from the European. Quote, the genius of this nation is not to be compared with that of the Prussians, Austrians, or French. You say to your soldier, do this, and he does it. But here, I am obliged to say, this is the reason why you ought to do that. And then he does it. End quote. After just a few days, Washington was so impressed by the change of this elite unit of the Continental Army that he ordered all other drilling to cease until these new drills could be implemented army-wide. He then began officially referring to von Steuben as the Inspector General, making all the other American officers, including generals, subject to the scrutiny of the Baron, who was answerable to Washington alone. This only fueled the fire of hatred for already angry men like Lee and Gates. On March 24th, per Washington's orders, all brigades at Valley Forge were to begin their new drills. The American officers were at first indignant that they had to drill with their men, 
and their men no doubt got quite a laugh out of their officers struggling to perform the Baron's complex marching orders, wheeling and turning and pivoting, marching at 120 paces per minute. Even more gratifying must have been the sight of an officer being dressed down by the Franco-Germanic babble of curses spewing from Steuben's mouth when they screwed up. After just three weeks, under the Baron's tutelage, Entire regiments were drilling in unison, performing mock battlefield maneuvers that, prior to the Baron's arrival, they couldn't even begin to comprehend. Even the Baron was shocked by the speed of his success. Quote, My enterprise succeeded better than I had dared to expect, and I had the satisfaction, in a month's time, to see not only a regular step introduced in the army, but I also made maneuvers with ten and twelve battalions with as much precision as the evolution of a single company. End quote. His style of command was, and this was his aim, rubbing off on the American officers, too. He detested the British custom of drilling being below the officers. To a Prussian, the British were an oversized, lazy group of musket fodder, far from the most formidable army in the world. Prussian officers, and now American officers, take personal responsibility for their men, for their welfare, and for their training. One day, the Baron witnessed a colonel personally instructing a new private in the use of his musket. And the Baron turned to his aide and said, quote, Do you see there, sir, your colonel instructing that recruit? I thank God for that. End quote. As the training progressed, the Baron soon worked in the proper use of the bayonet. Only a disciplined army could launch or stand up to a bayonet charge. And von Steuben was determined to see Americans become experts at both. Military encampment best practices were implemented by the Baron, too. Latrines were moved and dug on the opposite side of the camps as the kitchens, and general sanitation standards took a, a front-and-center importance. By the end of April, Congress had officially replaced Conway with Steuben as the Inspector General and promoted him to a Major General's commission in the Army. And further, on the larger geopolitical stage, France had announced its alliance with the Continental Army. And in celebration of the apparent winds of change for the Americans, Washington ordered a grand review of the new army to occur on May 6th. And Steuben went to work planning every detail. A church service began the day at dawn, followed by a cannonade to announce the commencement of military maneuvers. The entire army marched into the field. And they looked like hell. Tattered clothes, still some with no shoes, some using blankets instead of coats but they moved like the finest Prussian army Europe had ever seen. After more cannons, the army arranged into two parallel lines two ranks deep to perform a feu de joie, something the Baron had taught them. The first two men of each rank lifted their muskets to the air and fired, followed by the next two, and continuing down the entire line in rhythmic, coordinated fashion. The volleys rolled through the lines perfectly and then repeated two more times. No one fired out of sync. One of Washington's aides remembered the event, quote, The order with which the whole was conducted, the beautiful effect of the running fire, which was executed to perfection, the martial appearance of the troops, gave sensible pleasure to everyone present. The plan as formed by Baron von Steuben succeeded in every particular, which is in a great measure to be attributed to his unwearied attention and to the visible progress which the troops have already made under his discipline. Triumph beamed in every countenance. End quote. In reward for their performance, Washington ordered each man a cup of rum, and praise was lavished upon the Baron. For though the army belonged to the American people, and its command belonged to Washington, its transformation, as Lockhart tells us, belonged to the Baron von Steuben, and even congressmen recognized that. 
Quote, Discipline seems to be growing apace, and America will be under lasting obligations to the Baron Steuben as father of it. He is much respected by the officers and beloved by the soldiers, who themselves seem to be convinced of the propriety and necessity of his regulations. I am astonished at the progress he has made with the troops. End quote. But while parades and marches were one thing, battle was quite another. The big question still loomed. Would the American army at long last stand up to the British? On May 20th, the Marquis de Lafayette left Valley Forge with a reconnaissance force. and He was soon surrounded by the British and nearly captured. The only thing that saved him was his officers' ability to execute an organized retreat, something previously impossible for the army to conduct. Washington, while seriously disturbed by the near miss of losing a fifth of his army, was encouraged by the performance of his men and was eager for a fight, a real fight. The army was too. The weather was improving, smallpox was nearly gone, supplies were finally coming in thanks to men loyal to Washington taking over the task. And Washington had an inkling as to what the next fight might be. He had received intelligence that British General Clinton was going to abandon the Patriot capital, Philadelphia, and moved to reinforce New York in anticipation of the French fleet. Washington thought that he might be able to cut him off mid-route should he make such a move. But a problem had recently arrived in Valley Forge. And that problem was the most experienced officer the Americans had on their side, at least until the Baron arrived. This officer was General Charles Lee. Lee had just been released from a year in British captivity, and he was very much an enemy of Washington's, despite being his second-in-command. Though technically his subordinate, he only followed the commander-in-chief's orders if it suited his own gain. There was also speculation about what sort of dealings he had had with the British while in captivity, and whether he was really a released captive or a spy. Lee had always argued against facing the British army head-on, saying that Americans could never match British professionalism on the field. And now, seeing the transformation of the army before his very eyes, instead of being impressed, he was doubly angered. He now counted the Baron as one of his enemies. And it didn't help that von Steuben had replaced Lee's co-conspirator, General Conway, as the Inspector General. Even with the new drilling by Steuben, Lee still maintained that the army would crumble before the British and that Washington was the wrong man for the job regardless. The Baron, thinking little of British military prowess anyway, in comparison to Prussia, brushed aside Lee's concerns. On June 17th, Washington received the intelligence confirmation he had been waiting for. The British were packing up and leaving Philadelphia. Lee, of course, urged Washington not to attack, that they would surely suffer defeat. But Washington at least felt it necessary to shadow the British under Clinton. So the next morning, the American army packed up camp at Valley Forge and went on the hunt for General Clinton. Both armies record the weather being unbearably hot. The Americans were traveling light for speed, but the British, who were completely relocating, were very much encumbered. Many redcoats simply fell dead in the road from heat stroke and water was in short supply. Clinton also wasn't in that much of a hurry. He had 20,000 troops to Washington's 13,000. So what if Washington attacked? He had less men with no formal training whatsoever. They were an army who was easily brushed aside with a few classic battle maneuvers and a bayonet charge. They were unserious soldiers. At least that's the enemy he had known for the duration of the war thus far. By June 24th, Washington caught up to Clinton, who had settled his army in for a camp, and he called a council of war to determine the next step. Again, Lee argued not to attack, 
but the younger and more aggressive generals pressed hard to engage the enemy, saying that the British rarely were so vulnerable on the march. Washington did not like overruling his more experienced generals, and so he agreed to precautionary measures without openly admitting that he wanted to attack just as bad as anyone. He sent Lafayette forward with an advance guard to shadow Clinton in the event that he suddenly went on the move again, and he ordered the Baron out into the country to spy out all the movements of the British. The Baron's experience with European armies made him especially keen to potential British strategies. Which way would they go? What roads would they escape through? Which units would be at the front and rear guards? The Baron rode all night in the pouring rain, reconnoitering every possible path that they might take. He even came so close to the British camp at one point that British dragoons recognized who he was and rode out to capture him. As he fled his pursuers, he paused to fire his two horse pistols before riding away so fast that he lost his hat in the wind. At last, Washington had all of his intelligence in order, and he finally resolved to attack. He would now be able to test the mettle of his newly trained troops. His loyal General Lafayette at the head of the advance guard would lead the attack, except he wouldn't. At the last minute, seeing now that Washington was determined to attack, General Lee demanded that, because he was the most experienced and highest-ranking commander under Washington, that he be the one to lead the attack against Clinton. Washington acquiesced to Lee and replaced Lafayette. The plan, then, was that after Lee would initiate battle against Clinton, Washington would reinforce him from the rear with the main body of the army. In preparation for his attack, Lee did absolutely nothing. He did no reconnaissance. He gathered no intelligence of what he might face. He made no battle plans. He didn't even inform his officers of the coming battle. He simply woke up his army at 5 a.m. the next morning and put them on the march. That same morning, von Steuben's own reconnaissance informed both Lee and Washington that Clinton had packed up and was on the move and vulnerable. The attack must happen now if it were going to happen at all. And so Lee's army marched out in piecemeal, disorganized and confused, mainly because his officers didn't really know what was happening. Some units had even forgot to bring their musket cartridges. As Steuben returned from his exhausting three-day reconnaissance mission, he witnessed Lee's army on the march and was so disgusted by the sight. They were late and aimless, and so, in despair, he galloped away, thinking that Lee would never catch up to Clinton at this point. He retired to the nearest bed he could find to recover from the days and nights he had spent in the saddle in the pouring rain without any sleep at all. But the exhausted Baron was aroused after only 90 minutes by a familiar distant boom the distinct, concussive reverberation of cannon and musket fire. The Baron tore from his room, and he hopped upon his horse, and he rode like a demon to the sounds of battle. As he rode forth, he came upon a few militiamen staggering back in the opposite direction, and then more followed. Soon he came upon uniformed regular soldiers, followed by more and more, all in a dejected hike away from the sounds of battle. Von Steuben was confused. He knew very well the look of defeat in a soldier's eyes. He'd seen it a thousand times, and these men didn't have it. In fact, they looked clean and barely broken a sweat. They still had all their gear and weapons. They looked lost. Their officers looked pissed off. As they passed by the Baron, he heard some of them openly cursing General Lee. As the Baron continued towards the battle, he witnessed the entire 5,000-man-strong advance guard under Lee in full retreat with 15,000 redcoats in hot pursuit. The Baron was appalled by the chaos of their retreat. He knew how he had trained these men. They knew better than to retreat the field of battle like this. But he also knew that it wasn't their fault. He knew, like any good Prussian soldier would have known, that discipline starts at the top. 
Lee's haphazard march into battle and his failure of informing his subordinates of the strategy, his willful ignorance towards the proper reconnaissance had resulted in a magnificent self-inflicted catastrophe before British General Clinton, whose expectations of the Americans continued to be confirmed. And now, in no time at all, Lee was quickly enveloped. Then his flanks collapsed. From there, the battle was over, and Lee ordered a general retreat before the fighting had barely begun. Washington's main body was two miles behind and eager to catch up to throw the finishing blow to Clinton after Lee was to have bloodied his nose. But as Washington approached the battlefield, he came upon the same sights that von Steuben did. Confused, pissed-off soldiers in large, disorganized groups retreating the battlefield. One colonel shouted towards one of Washington's aides, quote, By God, they are flying from a shadow! End quote. George Washington's famous stoic demeanor shed away, and a temper flared up that few ever saw. And he rode forward to the mass of retreating troops in front of him, and he hearkened the men to him, crying out to his Continental Army in a booming voice, and he asked them if they can fight. And they answered their beloved commander-in-chief with three hearty cheers. Washington's arrival on the battlefield couldn't have been at a more critical moment. After years of mostly losing battles, and after a hellish winter at Valley Forge beset with epidemics, starvation, desertions, after an attempted coup from his own general staff, after willful criminal attempts to ruin his command by depriving the army of clothing, shoes, and food, and after losing New York and Philadelphia, the capital of the infant republic, and after placating overvalued prima donna officers, and after taking a chance on an illustrious stranger with dubious credentials, Washington's Continental Army was already hardened, already determined, and already experienced. But now they were trained. Yet all these experiences and sacrifices were now being cast aside by either the incompetence or cowardice or outright subversion by General Charles Lee. Lee's troops were rallied and reinforced by Washington's main army. But Lee himself could not be found. He then slowly emerged, his head hanging low and altogether looking defeated. Washington confronted Lee, and his pent-up anger from perhaps the past two years exploded on the dejected general. There are many different accounts of exactly what Washington said to Lee in the presence of just about everyone. Most agree, however, that Washington uncharacteristically swore in public. Lafayette says Washington called him a damned poltroon, which is another word for a coward. Another bystander says Washington, quote, "...swore on that day till the leaves shook the trees." He swore like an angel from heaven. End quote. Lee was at a loss for words. He stammered and stuttered in between Washington's curses and eventually put together an inarticulate accusation against his subordinates for not following orders. Lockhart regrets that von Steuben missed the infamous public humiliation, saying, quote, As a discerning connoisseur of profanity, one wonders what he would have thought of Washington's deportment on that occasion. End quote. But the Baron was busy elsewhere. He, too, had rallied a retreating body of troops on the left flank, ironically passing a listless Lee who was on his way back to his quarters. The Baron commanded the men to turn and fight. A massive battle resulted from the confusion. Between the two armies' cannonades, the battlefield was entirely clouded by smoke. It's claimed that this was the largest cannonade of the entire war. The roaring hell of musket volley after musket volley filled the air, and everything the British gave the Americans on this day, the Americans gave right back. They didn't break rank. They didn't flee. They stood their ground and they gave the Redcoats hell. 
As more brigades realized that the battle was still on and returned to the field, von Steuben directed them to the various weak points in the American lines. He could read a battlefield, and he knew where the men ought to be. Clinton, getting more desperate, sent his crack troops forward to break the American lines, but they melted to the ground from the determined and disciplined Continental musketry. As the casualties in both the officer corps and enlisted men piled up, Clinton was now looking for a way out of this engagement. This was an entirely different army that he was facing, but he didn't act fast enough. Before he knew it, he was outpositioned by an American artillery unit that had appeared on a hill overlooking his flank. Then a fearless American assault on the British center forced his lines back. Every redcoat, from officer to regular soldier, was no doubt thinking, who the hell were these guys? Von Steuben, sensing the panic gripping the British lines, took command of three brigades with the hope to charge and inflict a panicked retreat upon Clinton's army. As he began gathering his troops for this assault, he once again encountered General Lee, who even now, urged him to give it up, that von Steuben was surely mistaken. There's no way, no way at all, that a British army would be fleeing the battlefield in a panic. And yet, as they spoke, before the Baron had readied his assault, the British had already fled. Soon the sun set on the battlefield, and Clinton and his British army slinked away into the shadows. On the next morning, June 29th, American scouts found the enemy's camp completely abandoned. The Battle of Monmouth, as it would be called, was not one of the great tactical victories of the American War for Independence. There weren't that many casualties, and Clinton still made it to New York. In the grand scheme of the war, it really didn't change anything. But it was a massive watershed moment for the Continental Army. They had already proven themselves brave against the British, but at Monmouth, they showed discipline. In this enormous formal battle, it was the British who were driven from the field on that day. Alexander Hamilton, who was often a sharp critic of the performance of the Continental Army up to this point, had this to say about them at Monmouth, quote, The behavior of the officers and men in general was such as could not be easily surpassed. Our troops, after the first impulse from mismanagement, behaved with more spirit and moved with greater order than the British troops. You know my way of thinking about our army, and that I am not apt to flatter it. I assure you, I never was pleased with them before this day. End quote. The Continentals had shown that they could now move, march, and fight just as good, if not better, than the British Army on the open field. And they had an unemployed, defamed, broke, and fraudulent Prussian military reject, who couldn't even speak English, to thank for it. The Baron von Steuben's career following Monmouth would never quite match this high point in his career. After Monmouth, he got into several spats with other generals over the role of inspector general, as well as issues of his pay with Congress. On top of this, as the Baron's fame spread into Europe, military men who learned of the former aide-de-camp of Frederick the Great's gallantry in the New World replied, Who? The Baron's fudged resume was exposed over the course of a few years, and one of the men most aggressive in his exposure was none other than General Charles Lee. Von Steuben was so enraged by the ongoing insults thrown at him from Lee, whether truthful or not, that he challenged the general to a duel. And unwilling to duel, Lee apologized to Von Steuben and backed down immediately. But the Baron had yet one more imprint to make on American military history. During his drilling at Valley Forge, he hadn't had the time to write down how his drills were to be implemented. There was a military code of sorts, but it existed only in his head and so he was commissioned by Congress to get his expertise on paper and create a real code. 
The Baron worked tirelessly to compose what would be his masterpiece, and he drew from the principles of both the French and the Prussian military codes, but his genius wasn't in what he included, it's what he left out. He knew from experience that Americans were not interested in meaningless pomp and circumstance. They only responded to practical and direct drilling. And so, he cherry-picked elements of European military code and modified them to American sensibilities. Everything superfluous was cast aside. And finally, in March of 1779, he presented Congress with 150 pages titled The Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States but because of the color of the covers used for its publication, it became known as the Blue Book. It was a simple manual with powerful results. Officers of all ranks embraced it as they would the Bible. In total, it reflected Steuben's personal ethos that officers adopt a paternal care for their soldiers. Quote, the preservation of the soldier's health should be the first and greatest care. His first object should be to gain the love of his men, by treating them with every possible kindness and humanity. End quote. The Baron's personal life is the subject of much speculation. Many have suggested that he was a homosexual, but no one knows. And there's almost no evidence of any romantic relationship whatsoever. A drawing of a woman fell from his pocket one time in the presence of his aides, and all he did was tear up when they asked him who she was. One thing I think can be deduced with quite a bit of certainty was that he was a lonely man. All we really know about him personally was that he clung to his claim of nobility in a way that suggests extreme self-doubt. He was a baron, after all. But a baron of what? The grand irony here is that in Europe, these claims were desperately important to a society that valued the worth of a man based on the circumstances of his birth, of his pedigree. Yet in America, these claims held little practical value. He learned that quite quickly when he was given a hero's welcome on the shores of America and then expected to pay for his own room and board. The Baron even acknowledged this strange juxtaposition, quote, What a beautiful, happy land this is, without kings, without high princes, and without idle barons. Here we are in a republic, and a baron does not count for any more than a James or a Peter. End quote. On March 21, 1784, the Baron resigned from the army. He had had enough of disagreements with Congress. He was done. And he thus retired to a plot of land given to him by Congress in the New York wilderness. There he built a cabin, though he planned to eventually build a mansion, but it was not meant to be. One of his last public appearances was when he stood next to General George Washington as he was inaugurated as the first President of the United States. The Baron Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerard Augustin von Steuben died at the age of 64 in his lonely cabin in the woods on November 28, 1794. In life, the Baron greatly valued French military theory, yet like any good Prussian of the day would never let anyone claim that there was a finer army than a Prussian army, and for good reason. And so, one of his greatest compliments must have come when the French Comte de Rochambeau arrived with 7,000 French troops to aid the Continentals. Upon observing the American army on the march, he remarked to Washington, quote, You must have formed an alliance with the King of Prussia. These troops are Prussians.
Many people would probably assume that the Continental Army inherited many of their methods from the British Army, and it's a natural assumption to make. I love how it was randomly far more influenced by the Prussian Army. Bust that little piece of trivia out this Christmas in front of your family. If you feel this little history podcast of mine is worth at least a dollar, I would very much appreciate that dollar. You can become a patron of the show by heading over to patreon.com slash writtenandbloodhistory. Your support helps me offset the cost of production and research material to keep this thing thumping along. Another huge way to help me out is leave me a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Not only does a nice little review make my day, but it also helps the podcasts that you love find more listeners in the almighty algorithm. I also need to make sure I thank my little sister, Courtney, for the awesome cover art she does. You can find her work at cjdejulius.myportfolio.com and Dario for his awesome music that he does for these episodes. You can find a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, check out evergreenpodcast.com. They have a nice little history section as well. I'm also very happy to be included in their portfolio of podcasts. And so, until next time, I hope that you are enjoying this most wonderful time of the year, and thank you for listening to Written in Blood History. See you later. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.